cyber friends. This is Chatting Cyber, and I'm your host, Mark Schein. This podcast focuses on how companies can help qualify and quantify the cost of a data breach. Chatting Cyber features some of the most well-respected privacy and cyber experts in the world. Join the conversation with business leaders, government agencies, and cyber experts to learn more about how and why they got into this ever-changing field that we call cyber risk. Cyber colleagues, I'm Mark Schein, National Co-Chair of the Cyber Center of Excellence here at Marshall McLennan Agency. And today's cyber celebrity, we have Brian Wazer. Brian, how are you? Good, good. How are you, Mark? I'm doing excellent. Thanks for joining today, Brian. No, thanks for having me. I'm excited to uh, go through this. I've seen uh, your other podcasts, so I'm, I'm glad to be a part of this. Absolutely. So let's jump right into it, Brian. How does a guy that grew up in Chicago, from Chicago, end up being a cyber expat at the world's largest insurance broker? Uh, well, long, long story, but I'll get I'll give you kind of the uh, the, the background on how this all started. So, um, originally started my career at Marsh in Chicago for six years. Went to underwriting for a couple of years for Chubb, and then ended up starting up uh, the Chicago office for another brokerage firm. And while I was there, working on a lot of large risks in building towers that actually needed the uh, the support and the capacity from the London side. So when I started working with the London market, um, it was a different uh, mentality, not so much in, in how they wrote risks, but just how you approach them in relationships and how all those things are kind of guided by those relationships uh, in the Lloyd's market and other companies within London. So. Uh, went to the whole lengths of saying, how can I come over to London more often? How can I do this? And then inevitably it was like, what about moving over there? And I was like, hmm, I've never thought about that. Should I move to London? Should I not? Friends, family, and everything else. But uh, from a career opportunity, you know, I was, I was grateful to have the opportunity, took, took a hold of it and moved over in January of 2018. So haven't really looked back at all. Sure. So, so when you thought about, you know, um, your time on the carrier side, and then what, what was the impetus to moving on to the broker side? It seemed like you were so successful on the carrier side. Yeah, the, the carrier side was, you know, just getting some background, because when it's very similar to why I moved to London, was I didn't understand how an underwriter looks at a risk. So being six years at Marsh in Chicago, and then going to you know, looking at the, the Chubb side and the underwriting side, how do I, I actually look at a risk differently in a different vein? Um, but ultimately going back to the broking side because trying to create solutions for clients was really my passion. Um, from an analytics standpoint to the coverage side of things, I really wanted to be in, in that room with the client talking about, here's what we can do for you and here's all the different solutions. You know, I'm grateful for the time that, that Chubb gave me for the two years I was doing it from 2013 to 15. Um, and it gave me a whole different perspective when I went back to the broking side to manage the expectations of the clients, also the relationships with the, insur- the insurers and the underwriters, and also talking about a risk in a way that would make it more efficient for both sides. So for me, it was it was creating those solutions for the clients and trying to create those bespoke policies for them. Sure. So, so for the folks that um, are currently listening that, you know, only have heard of Lloyd's of London, you know, you had mentioned London mentality. What is the London insurance mentality? Well, I think you have to start with the the, uh, the history of it, going back to, you know, where does the term underwriter come from? So when you look at the term underwriting and underwriter, it's actually where they would make their mark below a ship line, the water line. And that's where it all kind of started. So 1600s, I think roughly, I'm probably going to get corrected by some people on that particular uh, timeline. 
But then when you go to the history of the bell and everything that's in Lloyd's, Lloyd's is a in-person negotiations now changed a little bit during COVID times, but the idea that you would go in, bring your risk and actually talk face to face with someone about that risk and understanding that you need to be prepared. You don't go in with a computer, you don't go in with anything else. You have to research it, understand it. And it was a totally different uh, approach than what I was used to previously in, in the States. States is so spread out and everything else. We have different insurers across different regions across the United States. Whereas in Lloyd's, everyone's sitting in that, that box per se is what they call it. So when you go to the box and negotiate that risk and you have that feeling of, I know what I'm talking about. I know the risk. I know what my client wants. I know we have to get that over the line and have those negotiations. Uh, it's, it's a different uh, beast in, in, in many ways. Um, also, you have the syndicates that are backed by this overall Lloyd side of things uh, that really has some rules and dictations that comes from Lloyd's, but then there's also the separate company that is in London, which I didn't even know. You know the, the insurance companies that some of these syndicates have have different types of approaches and risks that are very similar to the US. So there was that comfortability there from the insurance company side, but also that new side that was coming from speaking with syndicates and what they have to approach for the FCA and what they have to report back into Lloyd's itself. And just for the listeners that don't know what a syndicate is, would you mind just explaining what a syndicate is? Yeah, absolutely. So a syndicate has to, to report uh, back into Lloyd's in terms of what they're doing from a financial stability side of things. So if you look at the US where you have surplus lines and, and, and non-surplus lines or admitted papers, you would see syndicates being the kind of the, the uh, insurance company that is now reporting into Lloyd's as part of that admitted side of things. That it's, it's not a perfect example, but it's a syndicate that's backed by, um, or an insurance company that's backed by Lloyd's and then has that reportability into financial stability in, into Lloyd's. So there's all these different types of things to get the, the right amount of premium that you can write each year, going through reinsurance, who your backers are and everything else, uh, but with a little bit more structure to it. Excellent. So, so Brian, you know, you had mentioned a lot has changed, obviously, the world of COVID, right? We're doing this now virtually and things like that. Um, given that London was such an in-person um, uh, negotiation, what's changing over there over the past year, both from the way the negotiations are getting done and then the terms and conditions that the carriers are willing to provide? Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting because it's not only affected Lloyd's, us as brokers going to the insurers, but also our clients in terms of how they've had to deal with business. They don't have these in-person underwriting meetings with uh, these syndicates and the underwriters from the syndicates. So from a negotiation standpoint with the uh, underwriters, it's actually all, all virtual and Zoom, similar to what we're doing here uh, right now. And while we're not going to the box per se, there is a, a element of that face-to-face -face interaction that still continues, which is nice because the tradition of that, uh, that type of face-to-face -face interaction is great. On the other side of it, we're having to advance the digital and technology side of things even further. So one of the things, and I won't go into too many acronyms for everybody that doesn't understand the acronyms from a Lloyd standpoint, but PPL is where we actually have to virtually sign the contracts, both sides of the fence from the broker and also from the insurers to say that this contract's in force. Now, when we go into the coverage side of things, one of the biggest differences I learned coming over to London was that the brokers actually create that slip or that policy document. The underwriters then sign and say, yes, this is good going forward. Whereas if you do the reverse in the United States, you actually have the insurers or the underwriters doing on that side, the insurer companies 
creating the policy and the broker says, yes, this is good, let's go forward. So we're actually creating the policy documents. And from a coverage standpoint, particularly in cyber, we haven't seen anything drop off. There hasn't been any hiccups or anything, you know, touch wood, knock on wood, whatever you want to say. Um, but at the same time, I think it's allowing us to be a little bit more connected. In some cases, we probably have too many Zoom meetings because of it. But on the, on the flip side, we actually have a lot of communication going back and forth, whether it be through Zoom, Teams, or uh, instant message, or whatever it might be. Interesting to hear that you guys have uh, Zoom fatigue on the other side of the pond as well. I think it's the late nights from the United States when they, the underwriting meeting <laughs> you put at 7 p.m., but I, I adjust. So, so thinking about the marketplace and the way that it's changing, what are some of the new requirements that you're seeing um, uh, London-based carriers or London syndicates um, starting to ask certain insureds and not, nothing specific, but if there's general themes? Well, I don't think we can go through a cyber conversation around the market if we didn't talk about ransomware. So with, with ransomware, the questions that are coming out, and this is not just from a syndicate standpoint, but when you look at the, the big partners uh, that have been writing this uh, for 20 plus years, like AIG and Chubb, there are certain strategies that are being implemented now to ask more questions, not so much about what are you doing to protect, but more along the lines of what are you doing to respond? We're at the point now where responding to an event is actually mitigating more than in some cases preventing it because preventing it is almost like trying to build a nine foot wall and then the bad actors build a 10 foot ladder and it continues to grow. If you build another foot, they build another foot and it keeps going and so forth and so forth. So really the controls is essential now. The questions that are being asked are more intricate, they're more detailed. They're actually partnering with third-party cybersecurity firms to actually get these questions and try to figure out this is what we can mitigate. And from the other side of this, what are the vulnerabilities and trying to detect that. So when you look at different organizations such as Beasley who partners with KYND or is what we call KIND, they're looking at open ports within the organizations or the insureds and they're coming back saying, why is this this? Why is that that? And then you have to explain why do you have these vulnerabilities that maybe cause these type of ransomwares or other type of malware to get into your systems. I appreciate that. So let's let's switch gears a little bit and talk about holistic cyber risk management. Um, you know, you've put together um, an article on you know human capital management really with regards to cyber risk. Can you just talk a little bit about what the H, uh, rather the HRs need to be involved with the holistic cyber risk conversation to really make sure that they're maximizing or reducing rather uh, their cyber risk exposure uh, anecdotally? Yeah, so it's an interesting topic, which is why I chose to, to write the article because when you talk about the key stakeholders in a conversation talking about risk transfer in general, and as well as uh, detailed as going into the cyber insurance side of things, you, you think risk manager, insurance manager, maybe the financial director or treasurer, and then you start to bring in the IT. Sometimes, and more so now, we're bringing in the board. But the one person or the one individual or team, I should say, that was left out was HR. When you look at onboarding and offboarding, it's no longer going in and bringing every, all your papers and everything else and putting your stuff into a box and then leaving. There is an element of leaving a company or joining a company that you bring items or you, you take away items, but the onboarding and offboarding has become digital, which means there's access to certain networks. There's access to sensitive information. And depending on your level within the company, that access could actually create a huge vulnerability, especially if you're a disgruntled employee that's leaving and possibly wants to do damage to an organization but the fact that giving access and taking away that access 
a lot of the time falls to HR talking to IT. So that communication is starting to become more key for the IT to protect the company in the best way to remove that access as soon as possible in a lot of cases within 24 hours. And that's starting to, to bring them into a, a particular field that maybe they're not as comfortable with the HR team and they need to get a little bit more training on that side of things. No, Brian, I couldn't agree with you anymore. We've identified in the middle market space that there's a, a true need for really important training and being aware of what to click on, not what not to click on, doing phishing exercises, things like that. And when we think about who's rolling that out, oftentimes trainings coming from HR. So to have them more engaged, we found to be very meaningful. Um, so I, I, again, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, appreciating that it's starting to get uh, quite late for you uh, over on the other side of the pond. Um, my last question for you is, is there anything that I should have asked you on this particular podcast that we didn't get to touch on uh, as of yet? Yeah, I think the, the one thing is how we're seeing cybersecurity and risk transfer collide at this point whether it be through the resiliency side of things. So maybe it's not so much giving you the question, but giving you the answer to a question that might've been asked. But when you look at resiliency and what's being done, the insurance market is no longer just there for when an event happens anymore. There are a lot of pre-risk services now starting to be engaged uh, through those third-party cybersecurities uh, firms that these insurance companies and syndicates are engaging with. And the idea is that they're not there just to just pay a bill when a claim comes in. They're there to try and help you as well. So when you go through a, a cyber insurance you know, review for the first time or a renewal, you're starting to bring to light some things in your company that you maybe want to address internally after that type of risk transfer discussion or that insurance discussion. And that's where it's, it's key to go through these processes of understanding and filling out forms and having the conversation afterwards. I don't think that cyber insurance from the actual response side of things is just a piece of paper. It's not a claim, and I'm not trying to put down any other traditional lines, and that's not my goal to, to in mentioning this, but the idea that this has so much more involvement and you have to move quickly when something does happen, that having that engagement with the insurance markets and their third-party vendors is almost crucial to, to keeping your operations up and running and actually keeping your operations in business in some cases, because the reputational harm that could come from it is so detrimental. So I think the market has shifted into being a part of that resilience with the actual insured versus just being someone who's waiting for something to happen in the end. I know I said last question, but you, you just brought up a, you know, a, a great topic. It is when, it, when insured gets a, a, a new carrier, should they be identifying what particular vendors they want to engage prior to an incident or should they wait until after the incident? At what point should they identify the vendors that they should be working with to try and create a robust plan uh, to help mitigate that type of uh, uh, incident? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And this is where the maturity of the U.S. and the United States in terms of the risk transfer, having 20 plus years in cyber insurance has been doing this for a while. Whereas you look at, look at it across the pond in the U.K., continental Europe, and even as we start to go into uh, other parts of the world, such as Asia and Latin, the vendor conversation should come up a lot more. And it should happen before you start to put coverage in place for the first time. Now, does it always happen? No, that's, that's fine. But at the same time, when you have that event and you don't know which vendors you're supposed to be going to, or your IT does, isn't aware that you have a cyber insurance policy, it could really get messy. And we've seen that happen both in the US and also the UK and the rest of the world. And one of the biggest things is making sure they're aligned, not only on the insurance side and as well with the IT, but also making sure they're aligned with your cyber incident response plan. Because if you don't have those vendors from the insurance policy, 
then you're not going to be tackling that particular incident with the right vendors. And that could cause a whole host of issues once the claim comes in to be paid by the insurance company. So aligning all of those key stakeholders, as I mentioned before, along with the IT and aligning with the vendors is almost crucial in terms of responding to an event. Brian, uh, you've given us a tremendous amount of time today and shared a tremendous amount of intellectual capital. I wanted to thank you for coming on the show and chatting cyber with us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Happy to come back anytime. Thank you.